listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And while you are finding your place there, let me encourage you to be back tonight at 5.30 in the sanctuary for our second Sunday prayer gathering. Um, I think... uh, A priority response from us in this season should be to pray. Amen? And uh, so we're going to gather and do that this evening at 530. Uh, That will be followed by a deacon's meeting. And so if you are uh, an active deacon in the room, I hope to see you uh, this evening uh, after our prayer meeting. In fact, one of the most unusual questions I thought that I got this past week was if I was going to pray for President-elect Biden. I said, absolutely, I am. I said, uh, because I'm commanded to in Scripture, uh, pray for those who are in authority. Uh, And uh, you may not have noticed, but there's not an asterisk there that says, pray only for those that you voted for, that you agree with, or whatever, right? It doesn't say that. So uh, for at least all of my adult life, for sure, uh, I have prayed for the president, whether I agreed with him, whether I liked him or not. Uh, And so... Uh, I hope that you'll join me in doing that, and um, uh, just thank God that he is ultimately in control. Well, we're launching a new study today, a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, it's a, it's a Pauline epistle. It's a, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a, a number uh, of controversial issues within the church. Uh, The church at Corinth was a messed up church. (laughs) Uh, Really, when you think about it, all churches are messed up because they're made up of messed up people like you and me, right? Uh, And so it was no different here at the church in Corinth. Um, And so he addresses a number of issues, and among them are, I've I've listed a few here just kind of by way of introduction to this uh, series. Uh, He addresses division over church leaders. Remember, some were saying, I, I, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this. I'm, and it's really no different today in some respects. Some would say, well, I like this person, I like that person, I, like, like, you know, I, I, I follow this teacher, I, you know, whatever. And especially in the consumeristic type uh, culture of our day, that, that tends to be the case. So he addresses division over church leaders. He addresses church discipline, addresses issues like when and why should a, a church excommunicate a church member? He addresses things like Christians taking legal action against other Christians. He addresses sexual immorality. He addresses should a husband and a wife regularly enjoy sex. It's in the Bible, y'all. There can be some guys after the service there. Pastor, what week will that sermon be? Um, I want to make sure that I'm here for that. What about divorce? What about singleness? Should those who are single remain single? How about eating food offered to idols? Talks about that. Should women wear head coverings when the church gathers for worship? How should we treat the Lord's Supper? Should we desire to speak in tongues and to prophesy? How should we use our gifts? Will God physically resurrect the body of believers? These are just some of the issues that Paul addresses in this letter to the church at Corinth. And I, I think it's really important for us to understand this. And we, we talk about this often when we approach scripture. It's an it's a important hermeneutic principle. 
before we can apply 1 Corinthians to modern day issues in the church. And certainly when I read that list, you could identify with some of those more readily than others. It's typically not an issue for us whether our ladies are wearing head coverings, okay? But we are going to look at that issue. And I think we need to understand what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intended to communicate to the Corinthians nearly 2,000 years ago. The hermeneutic principle is this. Every scripture has one basic primary interpretation. That is, who wrote it, to whom was it written, and for what purpose was it written? We have to understand it from that historical perspective. Now, besides 1 and 2 Corinthians that you find in your your Bibles, it is believed that Paul actually wrote two other letters to the church at Corinth. Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians, and we find some evidence of that 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, Lord willing. He wrote from Ephesus, probably early in AD 55, and according to chapter 1, verse 11, Paul is responding actually to a report by Chloe's people, Chloe's people about the church in Corinth. He's also responding to a letter that the church had written him, according to chapter 7, verse number 1. And so this letter really is actually a response to Chloe's people in this letter that had been written by the church. The most basic purpose of his writing is to exhort the church to live out their identity in Christ as saints or as God's holy people, set apart unto him. That's his primary purpose for writing. And then after what he describes as a painful visit in chapter 2, verse number 1 to Corinth, it didn't go well, Paul wrote what some call the tearful letter or the severe letter. Uh, And you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and then chapter 7, verse number 8 there in 2 Corinthians and see some evidence of that. And then it's believed that Paul then wrote what we know as 2 Corinthians. And so what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians... Uh, The two books that follow the book of Romans there in your New Testament are the two canonical letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Now, canonical means that it belongs in the canon. Uh, That is the collection of God-breathed books uh, that make up the Bible, that we call uh, our Bible. And so in one sentence, and this is a little bit difficult to do, whenever you look at a book of the Bible, uh, it's important to ask yourself, what is the, uh, the, the, the theological point here? It's a little bit more difficult to do with 1 Corinthians because he's addressing these various issues. But if we had to to sum it up in one sentence, what is the, the theological message of 1 Corinthians? I believe it would be this, that the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. I mentioned a little bit last week about how some of the various uh, events and issues uh, of the last year and even now obviously into 2021 have made up this weird stew that has caused more division than I think we've ever seen before. That's not just true outside the church, I think it's also true in the church. Since last week, I had no less than a half a dozen people reach out to me in one form or another and say, Pastor, you were right on when you said that. I've lost a dear lifelong friend over politics in the last year. There's a wedge in different relationships in my life over issues that we've been facing as a nation in the last year. And some of you can nod your head right now because you can identify with what I'm talking about. Maybe not as severe, but I've got friends. Our relationship is not what it once was. It's over some of these issues. 
And so it's very important, very timely as we look at this book. The gospel requires God's holy set-apart people to mature in purity and in unity. The one theme that drives everything that Paul writes is the gospel. That seems like that's something trite, right? We say that all the time. What's about the gospel? It is. The, the, the word of God is fundamentally the gospel. It's about God's redemptive plan, cover to cover. The gospel that Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners and God will save anyone who turns from his sin in faith and trusts Jesus Christ. Now the connection between some of these Corinthian issues or problems that we have already mentioned here and the gospel, it's usually direct. Pretty easy to connect the dots. Sometimes the solution presupposes or it flows from the gospel. So we need to understand that. Lord willing, we're going to see how the gospel answers every issue addressed by Paul in this letter to the Corinthians. Have you ever seen the game show To Tell the Truth? Any of y'all ever watched that? A whole lot of people in the early service watched To Tell the Truth, apparently. You can admit it. Okay, it's an older show, but it's been redone. It's actually on now, okay? So it's on. I think there was a couple episodes on last night, in fact. Uh, to Tell the Truth, it's a, it's a game show where they have like four celebrity panelists, I think, and then they have these three contestants, and, and there's a truth statement made uh, about the contestants, uh, or technically one of the contestants, all right? Like it'll say, this person has this particular job, or this person has done something in their lifetime. They've jumped out of a plane, and, and their parachute didn't work, and, but they live to tell about it. It'll be some crazy outlandish thing like that, and all of these different, con- all of the contestants are at least pretending as if that statement is true about them. Okay, and so the panelists, they get to ask questions of these three people, and they get to try to determine which one is actually telling the truth, right? And then at the very end, if you've seen the show, there's this moment of suspense where they all pretend like they're going to stand up and, you know, will the real McCoy kind of thing, you know, stand up, okay? You know, I've often wondered, what would it be like if we, if we were in this uh, panel of contestants and the truth statement was, this person is a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And the panelists were asking us questions related to that to try to determine if we were telling the truth. Would it be obvious to these panelists that we were telling the truth or would it be obvious that we were not telling the truth? That's why I've entitled this morning's message, Live Like Who You Are. Live out your identity in Jesus Christ. There is no reason for a truly born-again, committed follower of Jesus Christ to be living their life in defeat. There's no reason for that. Okay, so often we say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. He doesn't have that kind of authority. Okay, but so often that's a cop-out. That's an excuse that we use. The devil made me do it. No, the devil can't make you do it. So many times we just walk in defeat instead of walking in the victory that is already ours in Christ Jesus. And that's part of what Paul stresses here in this letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians gives us the indicators that we need to identify who are the real deal or truly in Christ. Now, that's an important phrase. That's an important statement in uh, expression here in 1 Corinthians. Paul uses that expression, in Christ, 164 times in this letter. It's easier for us to understand many times what it means for Christ to be in us. That's pretty common language, particularly in the Western church. We, you know, we, we use language like 
you know, I invite Jesus into my life. I invite Jesus into my heart and, and those kinds of things. And, and it's pretty common for most of us to hear that kind of language. But he is emphasizing in this passage not that Christ is in us, but that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. So let's look together at the first nine verses of chapter one this morning. And again, Paul, in typical Greco-Roman literature form, letter writing form, he, uh, he signs his name at the beginning, right? He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes is, is uh, not believed to be the co-writer of this letter. Uh, he is most likely the mailman, okay? He was assisting Paul, but was probably not the co-writer of this letter. Uh, this is to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, here comes that terminology, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you, typical, typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 4 he says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you, here it is again, in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So from these first nine verses this morning, let's, let's unpack this a bit. Let's first of all notice our position in Christ. Our position in Christ. Scripture tells us that in Christ Jesus, we've received two special blessings. First, we are sanctified in Christ. Paul is writing, again, to the church of God in Corinth. Now, in the early days of the church, uh, they did not have uh, denominational divisions and, and those kind of things like we do today. And so uh, all of the Christians in one city were considered the church at Corinth or whatever that, that the city was. And although we have different denominations today, the same is technically true. All of the body of Christ in Van Alstine, Texas, can be considered the church in Van Alstine. It's all the believers. Now, theologians distinguish the, the, the word church in four senses. Okay, the first one is the universal church. Maybe you've kind of heard that language, universal church. Okay, that doesn't mean that we believe everybody uh, is uh, going to heaven. It's not, it's not talking about universal salvation. Everybody's ultimately going to be saved. That's not what that means. It, this is the people of God throughout human history, past, present, and future. Those genuinely uh, converted, we would say, who've turned from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And then there is the invisible church. Now, this is an important distinction. This is all genuine believers currently alive on earth. Now, when we say invisible, that means it's invisible to us because we cannot infallibly see who really, truly, genuinely belongs to the church. Okay? I, I can take a guess... I can certainly hope and pray, and as I look across the room this morning, I would say, man, I see strong indications in, in a group of people that you are, in fact, part of the church, but I can't truly know that, okay? That's, that's why we call it the invisible church, and there's the visible church. 
Okay, professing believers alive on earth. And again, we can't see the invisible church uh, infallibly the same way that God does because uh, what we inevitably see includes those who falsely uh, claim to be believers. Okay, and then there is the local church. That is a visible local body of believers who gather regularly to worship, observe the ordinances of the church, to work to fulfill the mission of the church. And in the New Testament... The church, when you see that word, usually refers to a local church and never to a building. In Scripture, in fact, believers are described most often as meeting with the church rather than going to church. Now, I know what we mean when we get up on Sunday morning and we say, hey, I'm going to church. Okay, what you mean is you're going to gather with God's people. And so if for some reason this morning we were forced to meet out here under an oak tree or something, we could still say, I'm going to church. Okay, I'm going to meet with the church, the people of God gathered. Uh, and hopefully um, your ecclesiology has, uh, has, has become more clear in this season. Uh, when there have been times and, and weeks and even months when it was, was difficult for us to gather physically. I hope that you understand the importance of that. And while we know that there are some who even still, uh, maybe it wouldn't be wise for them to be here with us in the room this morning. We know the importance and how God intends for us to physically gather together. So what does he say here? He says in verse number two that we are sanctified in Christ. When we're talking about our position what does that mean? It means we're sanctified. The word sanctified, it's, it's, it's greatly misunderstood. It's not a word that we use just a whole lot in our common everyday language. There are some who believe in what's called instant sanctification, where they say they can reach a state of sinless perfection. It's as if light comes down from heaven and suddenly never again will they ever commit a sin. Now, you probably met some people who you thought, that's what they must believe about themselves, right? <laughs> Well, that's not what Scripture teaches. That's certainly not what the Apostle Paul taught. Even though Paul had been a Christian for many years, we find that Paul, like us, still struggled with sin in his life. He said in Romans chapter 7, he said, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. If there's, if there's any verse in Scripture that I can personally identify with, it's that one right there. Boy, especially at the start of a new year, I can think, man, I am determined every morning when I get up as first priority back, as soon as my feet hit the floor, I'm going to be calling out to the Lord in prayer, and I'm going to immediately go in and open my Bible, and I'm going to spend time in the Word of God. But you know what happens sometimes? What I know I ought to do and what I really want to do, I don't do. And instead, I find myself scrolling through that stupid news feed, right? You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, and then the next thing you know, you look at me like, I've been doing that for 35 minutes. How foolish is that? What does that tell me? That is what is discipling me. That's what's discipling me in that moment. That's why it's obvious. There's some people, that's where you've been getting discipled for the last year, right there. And it comes in all different forms and all different shapes and all different... I mean, it doesn't matter the platform. It it, it, that's how you're getting discipled. And that's why you find yourself continually going to a place of despair and defeat and discouragement. and all that Because you're letting that junk disciple you every day. I've heard of some people who have literally been told by their doctor, turn the news off. 
That's what you need to do. Turn the news off and open your Bible. So that was just a rabbit trail because I can identify with Paul, right? I mean, trust me, there are some... I, I just go, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm still a work in progress. And so the New Testament, it, it really gives us and presents uh, sanctification in three tenses. There's, there's past, okay, done, finished. A believer is sanctified. Okay, if you've, in fact, turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, you are sanctified, full stop. This occurs when God sets believers apart for himself when he gives them spiritual life. It's often called definitive or positional sanctification, we sometimes call it. It's what Paul means when he describes the church in Corinth as sanctified in Christ Jesus. But then there is present sanctification. And this is where this whole uh, this theological attention comes in that we sometimes talk about, about the already but not yet. Right? You already are sanctified, but yet you're not yet sanctified. Confused yet? Okay, a believer is being sanctified. This is the progressive, incomplete, lifelong, maturing process in which a Christian becomes more like Jesus. And if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time, I hope and pray you can look back over that journey and you can say, by the grace of God, I am not what I once was. You may be able to look back and go, man, I was an idiot right there. You know what? But now, by the grace of God, I I don't respond to those kind of situations like I used to. Uh, I don't know if any of you follow this guy named Colin O'Brady. He's like this extreme adventurer guy. Crazy, absolutely crazy stuff. He like walked across Antarctica pulling a sled, like solo walked across Antarctica. Who gets up in the morning and thinks, I think I'll just walk across Antarctica, you know? He did this rowing thing with this team of people, you know, one of the most dangerous parts of the sea. Well, right now, he's on this expedition to climb K2. It's like the second highest summit in the world, I think. And he's doing it with this doctor friend of his. And so they, they, they do this major climb up to just the base camp. I mean, what would have killed most of us just gets him to base camp, right? Because then behind him in some of the videos he posts, you can see the summit of K2, like just towering above him. And so, you know, you would think, well, they're just going to strap on their packs and everything, and they're just going to head up that hill, right? It doesn't work quite like that, especially in that part of the world. No, no, winter storms blow in. And so they may go a little while, and then they may have to just set up camp. And they may have to just, I mean, they have to wait. And so they may be in their tents with the wind just blowing and howling, I mean, and all this stuff for a long period of time until they can climb some more. And so it takes, in some cases, months for them to to successfully reach the summit. That's kind of how the Christian life is. We would all love for it to be, man, I put my faith and trust in Jesus down here, and since that time, it's just been this steady climb upward. I'm going to reach the summit. I'm getting close, you know, any day now. (laughs) It's not quite like that, is it? Not like that for me. There have been periods where I feel like I'm making some progress and I'm moving upward and I'm I'm looking more like Jesus. And and then other times I'm like, phew, not so much. It's slow going, man. It's a difficult journey. That is progressive sanctification. That's why it's so critically important that we are discipled 
through God's word and by his Holy Spirit. And then there is future sanctification. A believer will be sanctified. This is this ultimate sanctification. It corresponds with what we call glorification. That's when God sets his people apart from even the very presence and the possibility of sin. Right now, we're still very much in the presence of sin with the possibility of sin. But in glorification, we will be set apart, removed from the very presence and the possibility of sin. So Paul describes the Corinthian church as both sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. In other words, they are already holy, and yet God calls them to be holy. Saints must live like saints. And so if we're talking about our position in Christ, that's the second thing we need to consider, is we are saints in Christ. That's the word hagios in the, in the Greek language. It means saints. Who are, who are the saints? Well, if you say the, the New Orleans professional football team, wrong. Uh, if you say those who've been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, you're wrong. Okay? The New Testament teaches the glorious fact that you and I are not going to become saints. We are saints right now. And here's the bottom line. I don't know how to make it more simple than this right here. Either you're a saint or you ain't. That may not be good English, but that's the truth, okay? It's not like, well, I kind of am, and I'm kind of not. Either you're a saint, or you're not. Either you're born again, and you're in Christ, or you're not. It's like, you ain't going to hear a woman say, well, I, I'm kind of pregnant. No, either you are, or you aren't, right? And the same is true as it relates to our relationship with the Lord. Dr. Harry Ironside, years ago, used to tell a story. He was a pastor at Moody Bible Church in Chicago, and one day he's riding on a train with a couple of nuns, and they have this, strike up this conversation about spiritual things. And he asked them at one point, he goes, have, have you ever met a saint? And they were like, oh, no, we've never met a saint. And he says, well, would you like to? Well, naturally, they're like, well, sure. And he goes, okay, here I am, <laughs> Saint Harry. <laughs> if you can imagine. And it's like, and, and, and that, that is true in one sense, but you also need to understand that in the New Testament, though we are, though, though we are called saints, it's, it's always in the plural. It's always in the plural. Nowhere do we find in Scripture that we are to live the Christian life individually, like as in an individualistic sort of way. So what does that mean? That means we're in this together. That means we're in this together. We're on this journey together. The Bible says we are called to be holy saints together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is what he says here. So again, what is a saint? When you get the idea of a saint, sometimes we use that in kind of a pejorative sense. We think a saint is a goody two-shoes or someone who acts holier than thou. Saints are just ordinary Christians. Saints go home and watch stupid shows on television. And they put bumper stickers in their cars that say, have you hugged your dog today? And stuff like that. They, they, they go eat barbecue. Amen? I mean, saints are normal people. And so you're, you're not some super perfect person to be a saint. All you are is you're called by Jesus Christ and you're set apart. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus, holy in Christ Jesus. Now I can ask you what your position is, but we know that that's not the same as your performance, right? That's why the, the message is entitled this morning, live like who you are. It's kind of like this. If I was to walk up into a, a football practice and I was to walk up to a particular player and say, hey, what position do you play? They can say, well, I'm, I'm a quarterback. 
That's great. That can mean a lot of different things. That can mean you are the third string bench warmer, or that can mean you're all state, right? Okay, so your position theologically may be that you are in Christ, but are you living like it? Are you living out that relationship? Are you living out that reality? That's what we're talking about here, our position in Christ. Number two, let's look at our prosperity through Christ. Some of you may say, ooh, pastor, tap the brakes right here. Prosperity? I mean, I've heard you say you don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Well, I chose that word prosperity, one, because it alliterated my sermon outline, but also, I chose it intentionally, really, because that word, in verse number five, Paul says it this way, that in every way you were enriched in him. That's the Greek word plautos. It's, it's the word from which we get our word plutocrat. A plutocrat is someone considered wealthy, someone who, uh, who, who goes first class all the time, all the way. Paul is saying, listen, whether or not you know it, if you are a Christian, you are rich. Now, am I talking about money? No. Am I talking about financial wealth? Am I talking about material possessions? No. So when he says we're rich, what does he mean? He means we are rich in grace. We are rich in grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9. It's this amazing scripture verse that speaks of our wealth in Christ Jesus. Listen, it says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that awesome? The Bible says Jesus Christ gave up the riches of glory that he rightfully possessed, and he took on human form. He became a servant, became poor for our sakes. Why? He did it so that we can become rich, rich in grace. Do you realize that there are 116 times in his epistles where Paul uses the term grace? You know what Christ did for me? And I hope you can say the same for yourself. He said to me, listen, Mike, I know you have a sin debt that you can't pay. You can't possibly be good enough to pay this debt that you owe. And so what I'm going to do is in my grace, I'm going to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay your debt in full. That's grace. And I am rich in grace. Rich in grace. You ever had times where you thought, man, I've blown it. I have so blown it that I'm beyond the reach of God's grace. No. <laughs> no. And I don't know about you, but one of the, the attributes of God that I am so thankful for is that he is long-suffering. He's patient. Because I've thought many times in my life, God must be saying, I am so done with you, Mike. But he doesn't do that. Because I'm rich in grace. I'm rich in grace. And then he tells us here we're rich in gifts. Look at verse number 7. I mean, the church here was a gifted church. The, the, the Bible lists spiritual gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 12. We're, we'll get there eventually. In Romans chapter 12, Ephesians 4, uh, some noted in 1 Peter. About 18 different uh, identifiable spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament. And God has given to every born-again believer spiritual gifts. 
gives his children ability so that they can serve him, so that they can minister to others for him and in his name. And when he saves us, he says, I'm going to equip you and I'm going to give you some, some special gifts. Now, no one has all the spiritual gifts. I met a couple of people who thought they did. No, no one has all of them, okay? And I don't, I don't suppose there's one spiritual gift that everyone has. In fact, one of the most enlightening times of my ministry was in my first church as a lead pastor over here in Clarksville, Texas. We did a study, a midweek study on spiritual gifts. And it was so enlightening to our church family because after we had unpacked the different spiritual gifts and everything, I had people in that church going, now I know why he's the way he is. You know, it's like they started realizing God, God, God's wired us all differently. He's gifted us all in different ways. And so there are some gifts I'm sure that some of you have that I do not. And, and it's likely that there are some giftings that I have that you don't. And, and, and those mixtures are different in all of us. And so those are the passions and the, and the things that God has put into you that uniquely make you who you are and enable you to, to contribute to the body of Christ. And that's the idea that we see here. Now, sometimes you've got to mature into that gift. You, you, you take a, an infant. You, you bring a newborn home from the hospital and, and uh, you know, some weeks and months pass and everything. And pretty soon you start seeing they're getting more mobile. And, th and there's a point where they kind of start pulling up on stuff. And then they start kind of teetering around. Well, you don't go back to the hospital and say, hey, it's obvious this one's going to walk. We need some legs now. You don't do that. No, they have everything that they need in order to be able to walk. They just have to grow into that ability. And, and there's some things like that with giftings, okay? You get a person who's a brand new, I mean, infant in Christ. It's like, well, today I'm going to help you discover all of your spiritual gifts. I mean, that, that, that's not what we're talking about here. But God has uniquely equipped us, gifted us, pulls the body of Christ together in such an amazing way that together we can make much of Jesus. If it was dependent on any single one of us as a lone ranger, it just wouldn't get done, right? So much wouldn't happen. But we need each other. That's one of the things that I love most about, about ministry is seeing how God brings people together with unique giftings and passions and all those things so that together we can make much of him. And then finally, I want you to notice, number three, our partnership with Christ. Notice, when the Bible speaks of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, it means all that is included in the end times when Jesus comes back, all that is encapsulated in the day of Jesus Christ when he is revealed. Here's the thing, as it relates to that, you need to do a little grammar lesson to understand verse number nine. Well, the subject... Verse number nine is God. Who, who is faithful? God is faithful. God is faithful. That's what we have to understand. He's called all of us into koinonia, which means partnership with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's, it's most often translated fellowship in scripture. We have koinonia with each other, and we have fellowship with him. With him. So how do we develop that fellowship? How do we deepen that fellowship, that, that relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first and most importantly, we surrender daily, even moment by moment, our independence. 
we surrender our independence. We say, Lord, today I want to live for you and for your glory. I don't want to be in charge. I don't need to be in charge. I'm not the boss. You know, when your kids are growing up, your sister would say, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> well, every day, fundamentally, we need to say, <laughs> with a grateful heart, rich in grace, rich in gifts, Lord Jesus, I want you to be the boss of me. I surrender my all to you. And then we spend time with the partner. We are in koinonia with him. And so we say, Lord, speak to me. What does that mean? Well, we, we open his word. And we pray that by his Holy Spirit and through his word, he speaks to us. Don't ever say, God doesn't seem to speak to me while your Bible's sitting dusty on a shelf somewhere. And he speaks to us through his word. And so you've got to be committed to, to digging into his word each day for that intimacy that we talked about last week. Not just familiarity. Spend time with the partner and then keep our part of the partnership. In other words, we must be responsible to live out those things that he reveals to us through his word. That's why James says, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And part of the problem in the North American church particularly is we got a lot of people who are willing to just get all bloated with biblical knowledge but do very little with it. Put it into practice. How are you going to practice what you've learned this week in your time with the Lord, your time in corporate worship today? How are you going to make use of that? Years ago, Guidepost Magazine ran a story uh, about uh, an actor named uh, Damon Wilson. He played Lamont in the, the television show of the 70s, Sanford and Son. He was the, the, the son. At the height of his success on that show, uh, he said, I lived in a 27-room house, I drove a Rolls Royce, I had a fat bank account, I had fame, but I also had a failing marriage and a $1,000 a week cocaine habit. He said, I was literally dying in loneliness. And he said in his desperation, he called out in faith to Jesus Christ and was saved. And the story said that he came up with a kind of a new name for himself. He kind of left behind his acting career and went, as far as I know, is still uh, a, a preacher of the gospel. But he, he started calling himself Johnny Jesus Seed instead of Johnny Appleseed. And the reason that he called himself that is because he said, my mission in life now is to plant seeds for the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I, and, and I don't know that he coined this phrase. I know I, I've heard it in, from different sources. I don't know who originally said this, but, but this, this, is, this is rich. He said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. <laughs> and that fundamentally is the essence of the Christian life. We're all just in and of ourselves a nobody who by the grace of God has the opportunity and the privilege to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. But we've got to be committed to living like who we are in Christ. In Christ. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.